listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good evening and welcome to the November 16th edition of Eye on the Triangle. The time is 7.05. I'm your host, John Boyer. Thank you for listening. Do you ever have one of those days? Today certainly feels like one of those days for me where it's just cloudy and rainy outside and you don't really have the energy and nothing is going your way. So what do you do? You reach for some coffee, perhaps. Well, our reporters Chris Chaffee and Mark Herring went sort of behind the scenes at a local uh, coffee facility this past week, and here's their story. Established in 1993, Larry's Beans has been roasting some of the finest coffees in the Triangle. Coffee is the second most traded commodity in the world, and its consumption is big business. In this international trading game, small farmers who produce 75% of the world's coffee can easily be ignored. After visiting these marginalized farmers, Larry Larson, the founder of the company, wanted to ensure these farmers could survive and thrive in their industry. As an advocate of responsible business practices, Larry purchases 100% fair trade and organic coffees. In fact, he was the first to do so in North Carolina. He now distributes to over 50 businesses in the Triangle, and his realm of influence is increasing steadily. We visited the roasting facility in Raleigh to discuss with Larry what fair trade means, as well as what it takes to achieve that perfect cup of coffee. In 1999, we had an opportunity to become a founding member a member of this um, company. In a way, it was it was a, it was a form of doing direct trade, and fair fair trade as a term wasn't even my world then. Fair trade as a term in the national nomenclature didn't even exist either. It was just starting to. In the West Coast and Berkeley, you know, it was known for a few years prior to that. But in 1999, out here in the East Coast. This was uncharted territory. I didn't even hear of it. So in 1999, though, being a founding member of this co-op, that's when our journey began. All of our coffee we bought through brokers. And by 2001, we were up and running enough, and I had an opportunity to go to Source for the first time in 2001. And to get to see what life was like for growers firsthand. And that changed my life. That changed my whole approach to business and my approach to coffee. That was to be able to see the ramifications of life for coffee farmers, who it's easy to exploit. They have essentially nothing they live in shacks. Fair trade allows the producer to have a sense of security for a stable and constant partnership with the buyer. Like any crop, coffee is only harvested once or twice a year, and the economic conditions in many coffee-producing countries are less than desirable for many citizens. Fair trade allows for farmers to not only count on a steady income from their crops, but also receive a fair compensation for their goods. This system is especially important for coffee farmers because most farmers only farm small plots of land. 75% of the world's coffee comes from small coffee growers. Small meaning they have a couple acres of land tops. They harvest anywhere from say five to 35 sacks of coffee but they make, they represent 75% of the world coffee production but being so marginalized it's easy to exploit and seeing what life is like for them and seeing how how little information they have and how the system is set up for them and how it would be easy to exploit. That hooked me into being into fair trade. To buy in direct from the growers and not using the opportunities we have to exploit them, such as, well, your coffee's not all that good. I'm going to pay you a lot less now. Take it or leave it. Instead, the attitude of fair trade is, how about long-term partnerships and pay a fair price and pay everything the market pays, if not more. These small farmers are not able to depend on the government for services we Americans take for granted, such as roads and schools. The extra money fair trade purchasers invest in the community allow for growers to fund projects that the government cannot afford. On the ground in Nicaragua, say, which is the country that I have the most experience with, in typical in Central America, though, the government's not building schools everywhere. Like, the farmers got to create their own schools. So what I've seen on the ground is schools being built by the farmers for their kids. I've seen roads being built. Yeah, there's a road that goes through, but it's been washed out. And maybe it's an hour up a hillside to get to where the base co-op collection point is. Um, but that road is washed out, and it's really treacherous to pass along. So they've, they've used some of their own proceeds to rebuild the road. When you go there and you see this, it's like, oh, gosh, yeah, obviously. You know, there's the government's not hanging around doing any of these infrastructure things. It's like, you're on your own, baby. And that's what it's like. Much of the coffee produced today is grown on large-scale farms from coffee bushes that are in clear-cut open space. This makes for a more productive plant, but a noticeably less quality bean, better known as the Robusto bean. In contrast, the Arabica bean, a shade-grown bean, is known for better taste and higher quality. The uh, original species of coffee as we know it required shade to grow. Over the years, the plant was, what do you call it, what do you, what's the word, hybridized? To grow in full sun, to generate more berries per branch, 
and to be uh, a more of a production type of plant. And in that production plant, it required full sun, which meant you cut down a bunch of trees and just kept cutting down trees. The reason you want trees around, there is a migratory bird issue, for one. An environmentalist, I'm sure, can give you a list of a thousand reasons why you want to leave the trees where they were. Generally, what we uh, what we find out there, though, with the growers we we work with, they maybe have acquired some land, especially in Nicaragua, that used to, that was clear-cut for cattle in the 60s and the 50s, and they, they have this land now that was stripped down to nothing and they plant banana trees that grow really fast to get some initial shade going on amongst the coffee trees they're planting and simultaneously they plant indigenous trees that grow really slow and then you know you fast forward 10 years and it's like wow that that tree's come along really nice you know maybe 50 years from now part of you know that indigenous forest will be back in the world of shade, there's considered five levels of shade, and this may be way too technical of an answer. Shade one, or level one, is basically full sun, up to shade up to level five, which is grown in the rainforest. It's like you just plant some trees amongst the forest, and then it's everything in between. So we're always looking for three, four, and fives. There is a plethora of different variables that contribute to the taste of coffee, but the roasting process is by far the most important. Coffee has inherent flavors, which are expressed during this process, and the best cup demands a perfectionist who pays close attention to detail. You don't roast everything the same. Although you could, we roast everything with intent. So we might make the heat really high, or we might make it relatively low. We might ramp it up really fast, or we might ramp it up really slow. We might uh, change the airflow during the roasting process sooner or other times later. And all these things change the way the coffee tastes. You can liken the example when we give tours here. I try to equate to something people are more familiar with, since most people aren't familiar with how to roast coffee. It's like making a sauce. And you can use the same three ingredients, you know, tomato, capers, and uh, some olive oil or some vinegar. And besides the quantity you put in, how you adjust the flame on your stove when you adjust it. Do you go for like a four-hour simmer or you go for a two-minute cook? Those things change the way the flavors of that sauce taste. That is true for roasting. So when you know what you want your sauce to taste like, then you go down this path and try to generate that. And when you and, and as you do that, then you then you got to let the coffee comes out of the roast. You got to let it rest for a few days, and then you check it out and see what you got, and then you do it again. Each roaster has a different style, and it's a mix between an art and a science. The craft of roasting takes tremendous practice and many failures. It also takes a sensitive palate and a person who is willing to take risks to achieve the best results. Our approach to roasting is to let the coffee take its time, whatever it needs to do. Now, sometimes we might have a fast roast. It might be 12 minutes. Other times it might be 20 minutes. We call it um, a slow roast. It's okay for coffee to have a slow roast. Back when I first started roasting coffee, I was always told by um, the pseudo experts or by some colleagues that you always need to make your roast around 12, 13, 14 minutes. And I stumbled upon when I did my great years of experimenting, which would be 1994, 5, and 6, that you can do some pretty cool things when you uh, do a slow roast. You can really screw up the coffee too, though. You can bake it so flat. It's like, what happened? I had this interesting chocolate taste with a wine-like zing to it, and it just disappeared because you're just low and slow, and you baked it flat. But you can't be scared to experiment with other coffees that uh, bring some things out. So we have sort of, I would call it, call it a unique roasting style, and I mean, that's kind of all I'm going to tell you. Not all coffee is created equal. The roaster not only needs to know the intricacies of the roasting process, but also the nuances and subtleties of coffees from different origins and regions. When I first got into coffee, it's like it was great to compartmentalize. Naively so, but that's what amateurs do, right? Naively so, you compartmentalize. And you do this in life all the time. Coffee's such a great example of life. So my own example was, okay, Guatemala tastes like this. And then Colombia tastes like that. Ethiopia tastes like that. And so then you, then you say to yourself, okay, well, I'm buying a Colombia. It's supposed to taste like Colombia. It's really neat when you get deeper into coffee that Colombia's a pretty big country. There's the northern part of Colombia that tends to be a little heavier. Southern part of Colombia tends to not be. tends to be a little lighter. But that's not always true. And when you get really into coffee, you'll find like microclimates. You can buy from the same group of growers in Peru, say. And if you want to strip it down, the coffee grown on one side of the hill tastes like this. Coffee grown on the other side tastes different. And it's like the conditions of the soil affect the way the coffee tastes. What time of day does the sun come up? What time of day does the sun go down? I mean, all those things affect the way it tastes. So you have to blend it together. Coffee consumption is synonymous with breakfast. However, it's not uncommon for some to drink coffee with every meal. The problem is choosing what works best. 
to Larry is a lot like wine. And just like wine, there's no right or wrong answer. I tend not to give answers that are real black and white because the world isn't black and white. It's all these little nuances. So I'm just trying to give you an idea. It's like, eh, this or that. Pairing with food, it's like, oh, what point in the meal? Is it like in the beginning of the meal? Is it during the meal? And what were you eating? What are you eating? Are you eating fish? Are you eat drinking coffee with your fish? I wouldn't do that. But if you had to, uh, I would go something light. Probably a coastal little Ricky blend would be perfect. Part of that with your tuna. Nah, not tuna. Maybe flounder. I think the coastal little Ricky were great with flounder. Tuna, I don't think you can do coffee with. Well, maybe if you rub some coffee. But then are you serious? Is sushi great tuna? So it's like we can, we can spend three months. Oh, okay, now. We'll spend, we could spend three days coming up with like 15 different meals and preparation of those meals and which coffees work best. There are as many ways to drink coffee as there are to roast it. Fancy equipment abound, but a nice coffee maker does not necessarily guarantee the best cup. According to Larry, the best way to make coffee is the old-fashioned way. My favorite way to drink coffee is probably uh, cowboy style or campfire style. I mean, just throw the grounds in a skillet. It's like almost like a Turkish eat brick. You know, you just you put the grounds in, in a, a pot of water and you boil it and let it cool off and, uh, and drain it out. That's my favorite way to drink. Now, I don't drink it that way all the time, but if I'm, if I'm out camping, that's, uh, you'll definitely find that going on for me. The quantity of coffee we consume as Americans is staggering. Regardless of the taste, our caffeine addiction fuels an entire economy dedicated to the sacred bean. Most coffee junkies will choke down whatever swill is put in front of them. Yet coffee drinkers should not just be asking where their next fix will come from, but what the environmental and economic consequences of their consumption are. Buying fair trade coffee not only eases our conscience, but also produces one great cup of joe. That gives any coffee consumer, especially coffee enthusiasts such as college students, solace to nourish their caffeine addictions without remorse. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Chris Chaffee. And I am Mark Herring. WKNC. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle. I'm John Boyer. Perhaps some of you are listening from Cup of Joe. I know they keep us on the speakers there from time to time. Hey, if you're there and you're listening and you want to say hi, there's some excellent ways to do it on Twitter, WKNCEOT or WKNC881 or email publicaffairs at WKNC.org. And we're also on Facebook. Just uh, search for Eye on the Triangle. So joining me now is Mark. Mark, we just heard from, but he's trying some new territory tonight. You have a dessert recipe for us and it's also coffee themed correct yeah it's coffee it's uh quite a recurrent theme in my life at this moment so here it is they say that taking that the first step is admitting that you have a problem hello my name is mark herring and today was a good day because i've only drunk two cups of coffee as a busy college student that naively thinks that i can balance every ambition and desire of mine and check with reality i've naturally become addicted to coffee Yes, Dr. Phil, I have a problem. I have been scraping the enamel off my teeth to conceal my habits from my friends. I'm comparatively happier and more amiable after a drink. The recent trip to Larry's Beans was a true attack on my vulnerable senses, and his offer of a cup of joe, coupled with the omnipresent aroma of java, was least to say hard to resist. It was my utter relapse. My demise. So, naturally, the noxious smell of the warehouse provoked a memory of one of my favorite tastes, Café Cubano. Cuba naturally has a strong coffee-drinking culture, since Cubans produce some of the world's finest beans. A cup of Café Cubano is more or less a social studies lesson of Cuba itself. It incorporates local-produced coffee and sugar. It has been drunk since the Spanish brought it to the colonies, and it is among one of the national dish Ropa Vieja, the hunger-quelling cigar, Café Cubano is a staple that keeps the Cubans running. And honestly, I could use a cup right now after stumbling all over all those lines. Tonight, I'm going to talk about a traditional Cuban dessert with my coffee addict twist. Coffee rice pudding. Just like a cup of coffee, rice pudding or arroz con leche is a prevalent theme in the Cuban kitchen. But here's my spin. It's simple, sweet, and it's a nice pick-me-up to complement the end of a meal. Add two cups of short grain rice to a pot, along with five cups of whole milk. Slowly bring this to a light boil. Most importantly, don't forget to add one cup of very strong coffee to the mix. I also like to add two tablespoons of finely powdered grounds into the mix. 
just to add a little bit of texture as well as boost the overall flavor. During this process, also pitch in one and a half cups of sugar, some vanilla extract if you have it on hand, and a touch of cinnamon, as well as a little bit of a salt to bring out all of the flavors. This process may be 30 to 40 minutes to fully cook, but once the rice is tender and sweet, take the viscous mass off the burner and transfer it to a storage container. Traditionally, rice pudding is eaten cold, but whenever I cook it, I can't help myself from eating a bowl or two while it's still hot. The coffee is strong enough to get a little bit of a buzz, but the sugar takes care of any of the overpowering bitterness. The creaminess of the milk, as well as the starch, bind it all together, just like a cup of coffee cubana. Just go with the metaphor. This dessert will have any coffee addict like me head over heels, but it's also a crowd pleaser to the people that aren't too crazy about coffee. To all of you listening out there, have a delicious evening and buen provecho. You know, I've said it before and I'll say it again, Mark. I normally don't eat my dinner before I come in and do the radio show. I normally have it afterwards. And uh, when you present us with recipes like this, as much as I like to hear them, it makes me terribly hungry. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm starving, too. I, I could go for a bowl of this. Just well, okay, completely at least, dive in. At least you're sharing my pain. And uh, it's really unfortunate, you know, we can't have food in the studio. Otherwise, it would have been uh, a really fun evening. To, yeah, uh, we could have done, like, coffee tasting. We could have done a coffee tasting and some rice. You know, not, not complaining about the policy because it is good that we keep all of these electronics intact. However, we'll, we'll figure out some way. Yeah, we'll bypass it somehow in the future. Cover everything in saran wrap. I don't know. I don't think they'd be too happy about that. And we wouldn't sound very good. Uh, by the way, if you'd like to get in touch with us here at the program, I just told you how to do that. But let's say you just joined me, WKNCEOT on Twitter. I'm keeping an eye on that. So right now it's 722. I'll take a little look at the weather forecast first. I mentioned off the top of the show, you know, it's a gray and drizzly day. That This is the kind of day that I like to go and camp out in the coffee shop and get a lot of work done. I find it very calming and introspective when it's so cloudy outside. Uh, there are some showers in the area. It's been raining so far today. Actually, let's see, 0.11 inches at RDU Airport. Only topped out at 67, which, you know, a lot of people have said, oh, it's, it's kind of cool. But that's actually still above our average for this time of year, which is 62. Low this morning was 54. Tonight, it's going to be a pretty similar night. It's going to be mostly cloudy with some showers in the area, a low of 51. There's a potential uh, that some of these showers could turn into severe thunderstorms. In fact, the western part of the state, just west of Charlotte, encountering some storms with tornado warnings on them. It's not to say that we'll see anything like that. But, uh, of course, WKNC does relay those warnings to you automatically if they are indeed tornadoes. On Wednesday, we're looking for a sunny day. Uh, So those of you who are not a fan of the gloomy weather... Have tomorrow to look forward to. High of 64. On Wednesday night, clear, low of 38. Very seasonable day going into Thursday as well. Some slight sprinkles possible, but not a total washout. High 62. Friday and Saturday, looking very good. Friday's on the lawn coming up. Come out to that. High 61 and totally sunny. And if you are braving a trip into enemy territory on Saturday for the UNC game, when you wake up on Friday morning, it'll be in the lower 30s. But by kickoff, we should be recovering into 60 to 64 degrees territory. So that's where your weather stands at this time. And if you want to keep up with the activities of the NCSU Broadcast Meteorology Program, uh, they're on Twitter, NCSU Weather. So it's 724 here at WKNC. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle, and we'll be right back after this break. Hilarious. And this is a WKNC 88.1. I am Chris Chaffee, and this is Eye on the Triangle. I'm joined here in the studio with uh, John Boyer and Mark Herring and Ethan Bartlett. Ethan is the Chief of Staff of Student Government. He is our VIP tonight, and he's here to talk to us. Yes, sir. Well, I got to say... Being an avid listener of 88.1, fairly excited to get in here today to see all the logistics that you guys and it takes to actually put on this radio show. Love it. So thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us, uh, Ethan. Uh, we wanted to kind of talk about a lot of things today. Uh, what? So your exact title is Chief of Staff of the Student Senate at NC State. Well, to be precise, Chief of Staff in the executive branch, I guess you could say. Student government is somewhat broken into three separate branches much like the government that we have here in the United States. You have the Judiciary Branch, the Student Senate, and then we also have the Executive Branch. Student Senate's elected positions um, starts in the spring. Anybody can do it. So fun stuff, get involved. Then we also have the Executive Branch. Anybody and everybody can get involved with that. Send me an email for those listening out there that want to get involved. And what is that email address, by the way? It is E-L-B-A-R-T-L-E at ncsu.edu. 
or L. Bartley or E. L. Bartle, as some people like to say. Right, right, right. I like right. the last one. E. L. Uh, Bartle. I, I like it, too. That's a good one. Anyway, so exactly, the chief of staff is in the executive branch of student government. Um, yes. The judicial branch is kind of the other one. Do you guys ever talk to the J people very much? Yes, we do. You do? Yeah. What do you guys do there? Well, all of the branches are separate. You know, there is this, I guess you could say, coercion among them. Um, the judiciary tends to handle student conduct issues here on campus. So as far as, you know, I guess you could say a congruence between the executive branch and the judiciary branch, there's not that much, but we are all friends. We all speak. So. Do you guys, like, hang out? Oh, yeah. Student government, man. We're, we're a family. Anybody and everybody. We love all of them. So, so who's the father? The father. Well, I guess you could say Kelly Hook's the father, although being a female, that might be a little difficult, but... She's like the Mr. Mom. The Mr. Mom right. of the student government family. So, What about grandparents? Grandparents. Uh, I guess you could say maybe Jim Seresnick, Jay Dawkins, the former student body presidents. We'll refer to them as both grandpas. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're old as... Actually, I saw Jay the other day. He seems to be doing well. He was at the... Uh, Good guy. Post-graduation. So. Yes, at the local watering hole. The local uh, watering hole. Yes, uh, so... um. So tell us a little about what the chief of staff does. Well, I guess in precise terms, I coordinate the tasks of the executive cabinet. It sounds a lot more complicated than it really is, but pretty much the executive branch is broken up into nine separate commissions. Um, these are anything on campus that involves student life, whether it be sustainability, transportation, community service. So what I do is I make sure that those guys have what they need. Pretty much the number one volunteer, I guess you could say. Now, listeners out there, if you want to get in on this conversation, we I'm sure Ethan would love to hear your questions. Love Ethan Bartlett, it. Chief of Staff of Student Government. Want to get in touch with us here on the program? Send an email to publicaffairs at WKNC.org or a tweet to WKNC EOT or WKNC881. So, uh, John, uh, John, yeah, John, yeah, did you hear that uh, homecoming was last week? I heard. In fact, Ethan, the chief of staff of the student senate, was a large <laughs> part of homecoming. Not student senate, but oh, student. Yes. Well, it's student government. Another correction, right? Right. right. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate you correcting me twice because I am a terrible interviewer. Um. Anyway, so homecoming was last week. What exactly happened? Because I, I know a lot of people on campus were uh, like either diverted because of the parade or uh, ecstatic because of the football game. But and what, food. Oh, right, and right. Where red get fed. Right, so so Mm -hmm. tell us a little about what student government was doing last week for homecoming. Well, with the where red red get fed, as John said, we help provide volunteers for that, sit at the tables, pass out pizza. If anybody walked through the brickyard, it was obvious that there was an incredible amount of people that wanted food. So we helped pass out the pizza, the hot dogs. I think there were barbecue sandwiches out there. I think it I missed was that. chicken wings as well. Chicken wings. Yeah, I know. I missed those days. I but, was uh, I was not in Tennessee. You heard what I said to Mark about food and dinner and the radio show, so <laughs> now I'm just even hungrier. I know, and we talked about coffee earlier. I, I feel like I need to go get a glass now, or a cup, mm-hmm. rather. Right. So. A mug, as you they know, Mark say. Mark is still here with us. Mark, yeah, you I'm can chime here. in. Yeah, I, I could go for a cup of coffee as well. Exactly. Now, um, I have just a little bit of a question with regarding the new chancellor. <clears throat> now... I've, I'm just wondering, how have things changed in student government? Because, um, you know, the school is obviously going in a new direction, not because the chancellor mm-hmm. needs to take it that way, but just be, with his new style and everything. How have you guys, um, have, how have you been adjusting with this? Well, obviously you don't get a chancellor or new chancellor every day. It's something that doesn't happen too often. So it's, it's great to get Chancellor Randy Woodson in here, who's a fresh Real nice guy. And also, you know, it's his first year here. And also, he really wanted to get involved with campus. So what he did is he really worked with student government. So we were kind of creating this relationship with him that's, you know, more than any other student government has had before. Because he's new. He's trying to get involved on campus. He's trying to learn as much as he can. And he kind of helped use, or rather use kind of student government, I guess, to maybe learn a little more about campus. So and through that, we were able to kind of build that relationship. It's real great. So what kind of things did you guys do with the chancellor when he got to campus? Uh, well, there was chancellor's installation, which went on. I don't know if anybody saw that humongous ice cream sundae that we had in the brickyard involving all of like 3,000 servings or something ridiculous like that. But, um, you know, we helped provide volunteers to help pass out all of that. And um, pretty much that entire week of 
installation events. We kind of helped provide volunteers to all the different events that were going on. Now, uh, you talked about the ice cream. We actually did not get to go out to uh, the ice cream, but can you tell us a little about what that ice cream was like? Well, brings up a good point. With the installation of a new chancellor, they're always able to create their own ice cream flavor. Really? Is this, so, this is, so this has been a thing that many chancellors... Excuse me for interrupting, by the oh, way. Oh, no, no, you're fine. Go for so it. So this is what several chancellors have had their chance yes. to have their own... Really? Yes. Because we have a creamery on campus. If you know Everybody knows Howling Cow Ice Cream if they've ever, ever been to Fountain Dining Hall or the creamery in DHL. So it's located in Schwab Hall. And it's, it's awesome. It's pretty much just like an ice cream making facility. You know, who doesn't like that? So Chancellor Randy Woodson came in. Of course, he's asked, what would you like your flavor to be? So he came up with what's called Wolf Tracks, which is kind of a play on the Moose Tracks, if anybody's familiar with that. So, you know, I've heard of it. Vanilla, and then there's like mixed in peanut butter and chocolate and all sorts of goodness. But um, obviously, we're the Wolf Packs. So You've got to call it Wolf Tracks. Just when I thought we couldn't squeeze in one more Wolf Pack pun. Exactly. Or I reference to food. I would love to hold a contest for our listeners to see if they can you know, track down that last remaining pun. The one about wolves, not, yeah, that we could use for something used, yeah. here on campus, yeah. Wolf Howl, Wolf's Den, etc. About the ice cream and about the chancellor, this program, uh, we had an interview with the chancellor. Amanda Wilkins from Technician asked the questions several weeks ago. If you want to go back and listen to that, all of our shows are podcasted through iTunes U. Just search for EOT or Chancellor Woodson, and it should pop up. So back to student government. That's originally what we were here to talk about. Ethan Bartlett, uh, our VIP guest tonight, Chief of Staff of Student Government. So, uh... So, uh, Ethan, Chris. Chief of Staff uh, of Student Government. You got right. it right, Chris. Yes, I yes. did. Exactly. I, I am learning. Exactly. <laughs> like the sharks so, in Deep Blue Sea. So, so there was, so, so uh, last week on our show, which, by the way, is podcast. Um, <laughs> got to slip that in. We they're, had, they're all, yeah, shameless self-promotion all the, about that. Right, right, right. We love promoting ourselves. Um, last week we had on... Uh, president of the nc state chapter of the naacp to come talk about the uh the graffiti in the tunnel now i know student government also had a role in that um could you briefly tell us about what that role was and how it was dealt with well i I mean we could talk for hours about this everybody's got their opinions on the subject but um basically what student government came in and kind of suggested was possibly this i guess you could say action team would it be like a listserv of individuals here on campus where if something were to come up into the tunnel, we could have them immediately react to it and go paint to it. Now, this is something that we're still working on. Um, it's not put in place yet, but we hope that it's not to say a fix, but I guess a, a temporary solution until the university comes up with a policy that it wants to implement on the free expression tunnel. So we sort of stepped back from the ledge, so to speak, with that talk of just abandoning the concept of the tunnel? I'm not really prepared to answer that question. Obviously, that's more of an administration mm-hmm. answer. Um, I mean, student government, we have a good time. But you're time, still here But talk. at the same time, it's, it's their decision to make, and mm-hmm. I'm don't want to answer for them. Well, I'm sure they appreciate that. Well, thank you. On a different note, uh, the things that happened in the free expression tunnel, mm-hmm. that obviously is been a pertinent issue uh, in student yes. government right now, but what else do you guys have on your plate? Like, what are your other projects you're working on? Because, uh, yeah, you guys, it seems like you ha- you've accomplished a lot, but what, what are you looking forward to? Well, as of right now, obviously it's kind of difficult, what with exams and I guess you could say the final push of the school year. So it's projects that are going to be rolling out soon, not that many. We're kind of working on a, a Toys for Tots program here on campus. Anybody familiar with that, you know, donate toys they go to needless or not needless needy children (laughs) excuse me yeah doesn't mean the same thing no so yeah so we're working on that um just finished up think outside the brick competition i know choppy's involved in that yeah last one yes i am uh think outside the brick competition which by the way if you um have a time machine you could submit uh your sustainable (laughs) idea to think outside the brick which uh is like a one-page proposition of an eco-friendly idea that could be implemented on campus with a fabulous grand prize of $1,000. So I think we got like 25, 25 yeah, that's about that's right, yeah. Good news. Rachel, fun Rachel Conley, the president of the sustainability, exactly. com- the commissioner. The, the, the chairman. The chair, chairman. The chair lady. 
the chair lady, the, the chair woman. The chair lady of the uh, Sustainability Commission there's, for there's Student be a Government. There's got better way to stay, say that. I know. The chair girl? Chris, I feel well, like you're learning a lot this year. Yeah, yeah. I'm really uh, pretty <laughs> I'm ignorant. I'm you guys. This has been an educational experience. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we mentioned it a second ago. You know, there are some positive things that are going on. It seems like, at least from my experience, I don't really hear about student government from media outlets unless something is uh, going wrong. And uh, almost in the same sense, nationally speaking, you don't hear about NC State unless it's for some kind of malfeasance or exactly. uh, somebody wrecking books in the library. <laughs> it's it's not always positive. Uh, what in, in, are you thinking as far as uh, how student government can maintain and develop you know, positive relationships with the students and how NC State can appear positive? Good question. Mm -hmm. Difficult question to get into, no. but I got to say... We, we've got to ask the tough questions. Exactly. You know, so long I feel that so long as you please the students, so long as you're representing the students and taking care of what they want to be taken care of, then I feel that we're doing our job. Now, obviously, like you said, anytime something goes wrong is, you know, obviously when we kind of get the brunt of it, the bad media, I guess you could say. But, you know, at, at the same time, it, 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 it kind of comes with it. it. Every time there are bad decisions made, everybody's human. But let's just hope that we can stay under the radar by keeping the students pleased and that we don't mess up too bad. I hate to say that, but... Yeah, it is sort of a, a sort of a loaded question. Kind of, Asking you to come here and defend, the, throw me in the frying pan, defend a yeah. reputation yeah. that you yourself that. did not necessarily create. The uh, yes. accused does not have to defend themselves. Exactly. Or anyway, you don't have to prove anything. sustained. So long, so long as we aren't heard of, I right. guess we're doing it well. Right. So it's like a say. superhero kind of thing. Kind of hate. Yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah. So long as the people dark please, night, you know, dark night of Witherspoon Student Center. Um, well, one final question for you uh, this evening. Um, as any good reporter does in their preliminary uh, investigating, aka Facebook. Yes, actually, <laughs> we saw that you were in a relationship with Daniel Harvey Hill Library, which, by the way, is where eighty-eight point one's twenty-five thousand watt transmitter is uh, based, right on the roof there. So, if you're ever driving down Hillsborough Street and you see the color wall on the front side on the first floor, right to the right of the dumpsters, in between the entrance and the creamery, um, it's on the top. You know, I would love to talk about WKNC's amazing twenty-five thousand signal of power. But we do have to talk to the tough questions. WXYCs is what three thousand. I think it's like twelve hundred. But I think they just got a new one. Yeah, it's three thousand. Anyway, that's not the point. But point is, point is, we want we want to know why or how did you seduce Daniel Harvey Hill Library? That secret's going to go to the grave with me. I'd also like to know. No. Yeah, <laughs> I, will, I will let those uh, questions remain unsolved, so that way, perhaps you can come back and talk to us some point in the future. Maybe I would love to. We can do a little more digging, perhaps. Ethan, has been a pleasure and a joy, as always. Enjoyed it. Thank you for having me here this evening. Thank you, sir. Don't work too hard in this office, all right? We will try not to. <laughs> all right, so now, next up, we got some sports coming up with Tyler and Taylor, only here on The Revolution. From the sidelines on Eye on the Triangle. Your weekly update on athletic events. So, and now it's time for uh, Sports for Eye on the Triangle. I'm Taylor Barber here along with Tyler Everett of Technician. And I guess first off, Tyler, how about that big victory this week over Wake? Yeah, it was a nice win. It looked like it might be a hard-fought win and or a loss going into halftime. State was up 10-3. Wake was driving. Probably, I mean, I wouldn't say they should have, but they were in a great position to tie the game inside the five. Elected to go for it on fourth down and then tried to run it up the middle. I don't believe the back even got back to the line of scrimmage. Um, it was never a game again. They, they squandered that opportunity. No more scores until halftime. State came out in the second half and, and really ran away with it. Uh, 28 unanswered. Wake, I only think they got a first down or two, if that much. Um, a, a dominant defensive effort to go along with real solid offense. Uh, Russell Wilson, a number of long passes, hit uh, Owen Spencer on a screen for a 40-yard touchdown, hit Jarvis Williams for another long pass that set up a touchdown, uh, ran for at least one in the second half, and then uh, you know State really had no problems moving up and down the field in the second half, and Wake's, Wake's offense just couldn't get out of its own backfield. A, a smothering effort by the Wolfpack defense, if there ever was one, particularly Nate Irving. 
Yeah, I mean, going along with that, I mean, just huge, huge games by uh, Russell Wilson. I mean, another four touchdown performance, two throwing, two rushing, puts him in second place all time in the ACC for the most touchdowns. With it, which is combined between rushing and greatest passing. touchdown responsibility, yep. if you will. And he is number two behind State's own Phillip Rivers and all time in the ACC. And then going with that, setting another record, how about Nate Irving's performance? 13 tackles, eight tackles for loss. That's a single game. That, that's record downright mind blowing. To, to make eight tackles, to make 13 tackles, you see, to make eight in the backfield is just, is just preposterous. I think Irving was kind of middle of the pack before this week as far as nation's leaders in tackles for loss, and with that performance, he jumped up to third. I mean, that, that's a season changer. When you look at his stats at the end of the year, it's going to be unbelievable. Oh, yeah. I mean, just that, how, I mean, that, that, <laughs> he that would have made a third of his tackles for loss in that one game probably, and that, that's no insult to the rest of his season. That's just how dominant he was out there Saturday, um, just in the backfield as much as any Demon Deacons player. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was an interesting kind of offensive performance by Wake. It was like they were scared to pass the ball. I mean, I know they have had an anemic offense this year, but I mean, when, once it gets to the point, you got to uh, kind of pass the ball, and they just kept running and running in the second half. I mean, down twenty, down twenty eight, and still handoff, handoff. It was yeah. like Jim Grove and the offense were just trying to like, okay, this game's over. Let's uh, try to get out of here quick and get on back down to yeah, Winston-Salem. That, that puzzled me too, Taylor. I've never seen a team get down like that and continue to run the ball. I, I haven't watched much awake. I know they've had a rough year. Maybe the quarterbacks have just been that bad where there's a 70% chance they're going to get picked if they do take to the air with it, but uh, that must have been the case because like you said, there, there really can't be another explanation why you would continue running the ball and not even test the secondary, really. I mean, it, strange strange, uh, strange afternoon Saturday. Yeah, definitely. And then I mean, moving along with that, ACC race as far as uh, State going to the uh, ACC championship representing the Atlantic side of the ACC division stays the same. Florida State won, Maryland won, so we're all still in a what kind of a quasi-three-team uh tie as State and Maryland both can still control their own destiny. All State has to do is go to Chapel Hill this week, take care of business, go to Maryland next week, take care of business, but Maryland's in the same position. And where they don't have to leave College Park. Mm-hmm. They've got, they welcome Florida State for a showdown that's going to eliminate, essentially eliminate teams. one of those two teams after by midnight Saturday night, either Florida State or Maryland will be out of it. Uh, Florida State just squeaked out Clemson. That was without Christian Ponder. Um, his year hasn't been what you'd think it might have been, Definitely especially not with some of the preseason ACC. hype, which I thought was was overdone. But he was a stud last year, I thought, and hasn't been that player this year. But he will be a welcome addition to that Florida State offense. And you got to imagine they're going to put up more than 16 in College Park. Maryland, if there was ever a confusing team, it's the Terps. You look at their record, and you got to think they need more respect than that. And then a lot of people... But the they defense, are they have they have not played anyone. Their ACC schedule, I think they've beat Wake, they've beat Duke, they've beat Boston College, and they've beat Virginia. They haven't, in the teams, like, they literally have had the easiest ACC schedule I've ever seen. I mean, it's amazing. They haven't, I mean, in their uh, their non-conference schedule, I mean, they're playing, like, two Division two teams. And, like, their biggest game is, like, against, like, UAB or something like that. I don't know the exact. But, I mean, it's nothing. Their biggest uh, game non-conference was against West Virginia, and they got absolutely smoked. Like, it's just, it's baffling to see. I mean, on paper, when you see that record at Maryland, they look good. But if you take a closer look at that schedule, I mean, talk about just... A easy and nice and comfy, cozy schedule for them, yeah. but well, I just, we'll see what the Terrapins have these last two weeks. That at seven and two, they've heard that plenty, and I don't want to disagree with Taylor. I think their schedule leaves a lot to be questioned, but the bottom line is they're in a position to take down Florida State at home and take down NC State at home, and nobody will be talking about what happened the rest of the year. You know, they when the big boys came to play with them, they either answered it or didn't. We'll know that in two weeks. Um, Definitely would be would be interesting to see if Florida State goes out there and blows them out, improves Taylor's point that they haven't played anybody that they're a pretender that uh, that State's biggest hurdle might be Carolina if that happens. But that this is all a lot of a lot of speculation and and none of it's going to matter if State doesn't handle what it needs to handle in Chapel Hill Saturday. Talk about the heels a little bit, Taylor. Yeah, it's going to be it's a huge game. It's a huge rivalry game, and as we all know, State's won the past three years. But it's almost like the situations are flipped this year. In the previous three seasons. Wakes come in, or states come in as the underdog. They've come in on the team that really has this game only to look forward to. They've always been the more emotional. Yeah, they've 
they've been the spoiler. They've always been the more emotional team going into it. They've always been the team that just makes it seem like they care more about it. But this year, Carolina's had a down season. We all know about the NCAA allegations. We all know about the suspensions, the tutor, everything like that. And it's this year compare that that Carolina is almost like the state with the state lacking of injuries the past three seasons. It's like the roles have flip flopped, and Carolina's playing the role of spoiler. But at the same time, you know State's not going to come out flat. At least I hope they don't come out flat. I mean, this is a huge game. They have struggled sometimes on the road. The past two road games, State's gone out against Clemson, against ECU. They've just come out horrendously and just, I mean, not been able to play near up to the level they play when they're in Carter-Finley. But I think with this kind of just this big, as big a game as this is, the rivalry game, this game means so much to the t- coach Tom O'Brien. I mean, and he's let that – his – the game meaning so much to him has translated to it meaning a lot to the players. And you can tell some of these guys, I know Jarvis Williams, Owen Spencer, Russell Wilson, Nate Irving, they want to be here. They want to leave NC State going 4-0 and against Carolina. They don't want to have this last loss against this team in their senior seasons, if that is, if Wilson doesn't come back. But, I mean, they want to go out there and they want to win. And hopefully we see another dominating performance like it was last time in Carolina when we were uh, 43-10 walking out of there. Yeah, it w- it was a big win for them last time in Chapel Hill, and I believe UNC was ranked coming into that game, and State was don't remember the specific record, but it wasn't pretty. It, and they State won the game. They won the game to go bowl eligibility. So I think they were six and six after the win. They came in at five. They were and six. five and they were five and they were four yeah. and six going in. That win put them at five and six. Now I think about it. The next the following week they beat mm-hmm. Miami on yep. Senior Day to go six and six, become bowl eligible. But that's besides the point. Uh, Carolina. I talked to Owen Spencer this week, and he was talking about how uh, even with um, they've had plenty of injuries, they've had plenty of guys missing time because of of the allegations. Everybody knows so much about. But he was talking about how this is still one of the most talented defenses he's seen. Um, Carolina, these past couple recruiting classes, especially on the defensive side of the ball, has them loaded. Um, you know, they, they keep losing guys, and guys keep stepping in and filling in uh, pretty adequately. So State will have no easy going over there in Chapel Hill as far as, as, as getting the ball up and down the field. This offense has been prolific at times. It's also stumbled here and there. It'll, to me, it'll almost be a matter of which State offense shows up. You know, there's been so many drives and so many halves where, where State – the Russell Wilson and company weren't even seeing third down. Um, you know, they they just effortless up easy. and down the field. And then they go a quarter, two quarters, three quarters, where they can't get one first down. Just mind-blowing the inconsistency that, that's been there, especially for an offense that at times makes it look so easy. You just don't see offenses that, when they're on, look quite as unstoppable as States does. And, and that makes it so puzzling to see an offense that seems that prolific at times go go long dry spells. So... We'll see. I mean, I think if State can come out early, it'll be huge to to score first to let that crowd know that this isn't going to be another spoiler role where the underdog just comes out and sticks the other team in the mouth. State needs this too bad, and an early score would be huge to let it snowball an early score, follow it up with another one. Make Carolina one-dimensional. T.J. Yates is okay when he sits back and can, can dink and dunk short. Um, you can say this about any quarterback, but you get them off balance. That running game isn't powerful anyway. If you make them feel like they need it and he starts going downfield, let your secondary be opportunistic. Um, the problem will be if Carolina comes out and gets the momentum early and, and can mix in both of them and, and State doesn't know what's coming and T.J. Yates is comfortable, you're generally going to blitz a little less when you're down um, you're going to play a little safer if the heels can can get up and get state on on its heels as a defensive unit. Then then Yates can be balanced and comfortable. And he's shown this year he's had a big year, uh, much improved over a year ago. If he's comfortable and people aren't harassing him and, and his team's under control, he can he can light you up. So let's uh, hope he won't. And another thing we talked about all these Carolina guys that have lost three or four years in a row. Yates has really laid some eggs against the against the Wolfpack, and he knows that better than anyone. He's going to be ready to come out there and and get whatever redemption he can for some embarrassing performances he's had over the years, especially against State. Yeah, I mean, going along that, I agree with everything. It really does matter what kind of Carolina team comes out there. Yates had some really good games this season. A lot more good games than bad, but he still has those old T.J. Yates games. He showed the old T.J. Yates a little bit last week against Virginia Tech. They got him to be booed so many times, but I mean, Wrapping up, kind of, Tyler, what do you expect? What's your prediction for the game? 
I will never, ever, under any circumstances, pick State to lose, but I believe this will be the hardest game of the year. I think it will be one of the best Carolina State games anybody's seen in a while. I think it very well might come down to who gets the ball last or which funny fumble bounces somewhere or something. I think it's going to be nuts. I think it's going to go down to the wire. And like I said, I I will not ever pick against State, especially not against Carolina. So I'll say 31-28, but I I really expect a barn burner and a toss-up. Yeah, I'm right there with you. A little little lower scoring. I think it's going to come down to the fact can Chris Hawthorne, the freshman kicker, filling in for Josh Sikowski, can he make those clutch kicks? And I think he's able to do that. He looked good this week against Wake, a little different circumstances, hit his first career field goal ever, but looks solid. I think State's going to walk away with the victory 27-24 on a late field goal to seal the deal. Any win I'll take, but I do expect to be quite the nervous fan there late fourth okay, quarter. I think it's going to be a showdown. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, hopefully, you got. We'll see you there, or you'll be watching it on TV. But that wraps it up for this week's sports for Eye on the Triangle. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC eighty-eight point one. It's seven fifty-four now. We have some time for some open discussion. Normally, you know, we don't have time here on Eye on the Triangle to do follow-ups, but uh, there is one very important follow-up. Last week, Chris, you did a story about Four Loco, and I got this in my inbox from Governor Bev Perdue. Actually, well, not from her, from her press people, but still, yesterday, which was today then, today has called for manufacturers of alcohol energy drinks to voluntarily withdraw malt beverages containing stimulants from the North Carolina market until they are found to be safe. It was also banned in New York, by the way. Yeah, and Washington and uh, lots of other places. Oklahoma and Michigan. ABC Commission will take up the question of restricting these products. Well, Oklahoma also banned Sharia law, so I don't think that means much in that instance. The commission, the ABC commission, will take up the question of restricting these products at its scheduled meeting November 18th, which is two days from now. The beer-based beverages are fruit-flavored, sold in large, 20-ounce or larger, non-resealable cans, and contain 12% alcohol. The drinks are sold in convenience stores, groceries, and other locations that hold ABC permits in North Carolina. For all you folks who didn't listen last week and or have, have no never idea had what one before, yeah. Loco is. So it encourages continued drinking because the stimulants counteract the alcohol. Uh, Pull quote from Purdue, teenagers and college students are drinking these drinks and ending up in the hospital. She said, the time to act on this is now before we are faced with the death of any one of our young people. The only responsible way to allow these drinks on our shelves is to first carefully review their health effects. Thoughts? Just overall, Four Locos, it it just doesn't seem like a good combination. It seems like... Well, sorry, go ahead. I know. It just seems like binge drinking in a can. Well, I mean, effectively it is, and I think that just like uh, Johnny, um, who is the the guy who works at Peace Street, who I interviewed last week, he basically said something to the effect of, look, everybody's going to binge drink, but this product seems specifically designed for binge drinking, so I question the ethics of the manufacturer, and I agree with Johnny. Um, Yeah, it's probably not good for you, and... um, it is probably borderline dangerous, but the question becomes then, where do we draw the line? Because we're going to continue um, banning products such as these, and I think that it kind of runs down a slippery slope. You can't, you can't ban one thing without banning something else, um, and it ends up becoming quite the, uh, quite the the problem. I think that exactly, yeah. It's there's a fine balance between that and self control, so. Our next topic of open discussion is a little lighter. There's a called Artists for Art on the Move. If you're not familiar with the program, the Raleigh Arts Commission and CAT Capital Area Transit are partnering, have been partnering, actually. They exhibit work from local artists on the sides of CAT buses. Uh, The next round will be April 2011 through October 2011. Twelve artists will be selected to get their art put on the side of the bus. $1,000 prize for doing that. Uh, In order to be eligible, you have to be over 18, lived or worked or studied in Wake County over the past year. Submissions delivered to the Arts Commission office on January 7th. If you missed all that and want more information, it's raleighnc.gov slash arts. You know, that's a really cool thing. I, I, I feel like Raleigh... And the triangle in general has really been uh, trying to emphasize a movement for the arts um, and culture just overall. Um, I think it's a really cool uh, sort of addition to the the cultural scene. What do you guys think? Also, um, a couple weeks ago, actually, we had a... uh an artist come and decorate a cat bus, and it was on NC State's campus, and Mm -hmm. you could walk through it, and it was like a mobile art gallery. And so... These things are popping up everywhere, and things like First Friday, as well as other art-type things, are really positive for Raleigh. And I think that it kind of 
uh, ties into the local music scene, which is thriving right now. Um, art, as well as food and the uh, downtown renaissance, I think it's all kind of giving Raleigh the up and up, and it's making Raleigh the fastest growing city in North Carolina. And in the U.S., the raleigh Cary metro area, fastest growing. Raleigh's a great place to be right now. Uh, one other follow-up, you know, we've been talking about politics, and uh, you'd think that everything that's been said and done could be done, but I still see from time to time one or two political yard signs out there, and they're not supposed to be up, but the city is accepting them for recycling. There's a large container specifically for recycling the paperboard uh, yard signs for campaigns out at the Mini City Drop-Off Recycling Center located at North Boulevard Plaza behind the Taco Bell, which is near the food line. That means nothing to me, but if you know where North Boulevard Plaza is, that's where you take your it's yard signs. Right off of Capitol, I think. Paperboard only, no plastic film signs, metal or wood stakes. So take the stakes out before you toss it in. That sounds like a really great step in the right direction for Raleigh as far as uh, campaign signs go. Uh, also... It might be notable that Raleigh does not have a formal policy on removal of campaign signs after an election because all campaign signs are banned on public property. So if you have no, if you ban the signs, then you uh, don't have to worry about cleaning them up. But clearly, that doesn't happen. Maybe the anecdotes of punishment I've heard have come from other jurisdictions, but at least in some places, if you leave the signs up, you get a fine from the SBOE. Right. What do you guys yeah. think about bumper stickers? Oh, get rid of them. Actually, I saw the other day, this made me laugh, there was a McCain-Palin bumper sticker that had been cut to where it was just the bottom half and it said Palin. But you could still recognize the logo form from the old campaign. Yeah, I saw one that said Carrie and not Edwards. Sorry, man. You know, I think at this point, uh, John Edwards, uh, there's nothing we can do to salvage his reputation. He's disowned NC State and will disown him. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't like reason. state very much at all. Yeah, yeah just yeah. Uh, well, stay under the radar, buddy. Don't come back up. Well, normally it's 8 o'clock. This is the time where I would say, join us next week. Don't join us next week. We won't be here. Basketball. Uh, women's basketball. I forget who exactly they're taking on, but listen, anyway. <laughs> another team. The, another team that, well, anyhow, we're looking forward to uh, maybe in the coming weeks having some interviews pertaining to basketball as basketball season begins to gear up. So stay tuned for announcements about that. Um, but the week after that, we'll be having a show about solar power in the city of Raleigh. Uh, that brings us, I think, to November 30th. So join us a week from now, from the next week. I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyhow, we like hearing from you. I've said it before uh, to little effect, but if you want to get in touch with the show, publicaffairswknc.org, Twitter, WKNCEOT, blah, 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 blah. iTunes, we do podcast the show. If you heard something you like and you missed it or want to go back and hear an old show, we go all the way back to uh, beginning of 09 iTunes U, search for EOT. Big thanks to our guest tonight, Ethan Bartlett, who is the we're gonna get it right. He is the chief of staff of student government here at NC State. So executive branch student. Exactly. And Larry Larson of Larry Speens. Hey. Yeah, exactly. For my producer, Chris Chaffee, correspondents, Jacob Downey, Mason Morris, and Tom Anderson, sportscasters, Tyler Everett and Taylor Barber, and food critic, Mark Herring. I'm your host and public affairs director, John Boyer. Have a great night. Join us next time for more Eye on the Triangle on November thirtieth.